0: Welcome to Mission Daily. On today's episode, Chad sits down with Susan St. Ledger, President of Worldwide Field Operations at Splunk. Splunk makes it easy to search, monitor, and analyze big data generated by companies in order to help those companies reach their business goals. Susan studied computer science at the University of Scranton and followed her interest in tech by pursuing a career in the field. Susan is now recognized as a highly experienced tech leader that prior to Splunk served as Salesforce Chief Revenue Officer. Over her career, she's notably been awarded the most influential woman in Bay Area business, both in 2018 and in 2017, as well as one of the top 25 women leaders in SaaS. In this episode, Chad and Susan sit down to discuss the importance of having a high-growth mindset when working for a high-growth company, how data will solve the world's biggest problems, and where she sees Splunk heading into the future.
1: Susan, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Chad. So I caught you on a busy day, like many others here at (laughs) Splunk. Uh, What are you up to today?
2: Pretty busy day. We're starting actually planning for next fiscal year. So I spent this morning, early this morning, with uh, my European team. More time later on this afternoon uh, with my Americas team. It's a very long process, but it literally, by the end of Q2, you start planning for the next fiscal year so. This week, being in town, I have to take advantage of that as I hit the road come Sunday for a trip to Europe.
1: So as president of Worldwide Field Operations, that's a lot on your plate. There are many different markets. Where are you focused right now and where are you trying to prioritize your efforts?
2: We're in the process at Splunk of going through a lot of transformation and doing it you know, while we're at high growth. And so there are many different priorities, but the net of it is we're on our way to becoming a you know, full renewable company. So that, that big shift from a perpetual software company to term and cloud company takes up a lot of time, and that's the big focus, is driving transformation.
1: So I've read some information recently that talks about the percentage of renewables increasing. That's really exciting, I'm sure, for you. Could you maybe expand on that more and explain to people what that is and why that's a signal for positive things in the future?
2: Absolutely. So as we know, the whole software industry has shifted to a renewable model, and software companies that start today start with that model. In the end, the lifetime value um, of a customer for us and the value that the customer gets when we're focused on on a subscription model is it's much stronger than the old perpetual model. We're very committed to their customer success and their adoption. And it gives them a lot of flexibility in terms of the way that they can buy Splunk. And so it's it's a very exciting move. And it's in line, of course, with, with the entire software industry and where it's headed.
1: So I've dug into some of your leadership philosophies and ideas for building culture and high performance teams. And I would love to dive into those a little bit. So how do you go about building and fostering a high growth mindset and culture?
2: You know, I've been really fortunate, Chad, in that most of my career, I've been at high growth companies. And so I don't really know anything else. And I'm, I call myself a bit of a high growth junkie. And so when I think about that, there are really three basic principles when I think about a high growth mindset. One is you have to create a culture of continuous learning and you have to make sure that you're hiring for people who want to be continuous learners and people who want to take risk and make pivots. The second aspect is continuous improvement. We've had a lot of success here at Splunk and like any other sales organization and Go to market team. We love to celebrate at the end of every quarter and we do. But then the very next week or the week after, depending upon timing, we have the entire global leadership team, my directs, in a room and we're focusing on everything we need to do better and differently. So it's that concept of continuous improvement and making sure that you never settle on anything being good enough, knowing that you can always make something better than it is today. And then lastly, in line with those first two, is you have to be comfortable being uncomfortable. There's no other way. You're not growing if you're not uncomfortable.
1: So building a uh- high growth mindset, I think, starts with the information you're consuming. So what type of information are you currently uh, consuming right now? Is it a mix of online news, podcasts?
2: We're a very data-driven culture, and, and we tend to make sure that we look at all aspects of not just our immediate world, like our what I would say our immediate high-tech world, but I think we really try and expose ourselves to outside influences as well. One of the things that's unique about, I believe, our long-term vision is that we believe that every problem is is a data problem. And so we're not just thinking about the world we spend most of our time in today which is IT and security, but we're thinking about, you know, solving some of the world's greatest problems because data is at the fundamental solution and getting to root cause. And so if you look at things like human trafficking and the work that we're doing with Jen, you know, to really focus on that, or if you look at things like the opioid problem and what we're doing with New York Presbyterian to to fight fraud around opioids, that really, I think, is the the world that we live in, which is, yes, we need to focus on the market we're really owning today and that we're in that upper right-hand quadrant on, but at the same time, we have much bigger aspirations. And we're very provocative about the importance that we believe we can play in the world and the data problems that we can help solve.
1: And both of the challenges that you just mentioned are ones that are uncomfortable, right? They're (laughs) uncomfortable for us as a society, as individuals, and even talking about them sometimes is uh, is difficult. What advice do you have for people that want to tackle those problems? I mean, obviously they're gonna have to face a lot of uncomfort and discomfort. What advice do you have for teams that are tackling problems like that?
2: I, again, go back to my data-driven nature. I'm, you know, a computer scientist at heart, and that's how I started my career. And I think that fundamentally, it's really trying to get your arms around all of the data that you possibly can. Early on in my career, I was also taught that, you know, you take data as far as you can, everything is a data problem. But at the same time, if there's no new material data coming, then at that point, you've got to make decisions. And so I think it's really that balance. I do think that most organizations, today? Do you have inhibitors to getting all the data? And so those are the things that we're trying to help them solve. We can talk a little bit more about that. But in the end, I think data takes you, you know, probably 99% of the way. And then obviously there's always some level of intuition involved, but certainly more data than intuition in my world.
1: Yeah. I love starting with the data because, you know, leadership is the art of decision-making under opacity. So true leadership, you're going to have an absence of data. You're not going to have everything you need for every decision. Many people are familiar with always be closing, but closing (laughs) doesn't happen until everyone's always learning first. Are there any examples or stories of how your team is always learning?
2: You know, first of all, again, we play in so many different markets, so IT and security, but you know, we're always focused on what's the next market, what's the next use case that we wanna go after, what's the next big problem that we wanna solve? And so we, for instance, right now, one of the big focuses that we have is we've started to incubate a verticals focus, right? And so how do you take what we know in the world that we have today with IT and security and take that out to the business side of the equation? And so combination of both my go-to-market team as well as our product team, we're starting now to make sure that we unleash the power of Splunk to act on data outside of just IT and security to solve business problems. And so one example of that would be Splunk Business Flow, What we're doing is we're actually helping business process people understand where the gaps are by looking at their actual data flows, just ingesting it into Splunk and showing them graphically what that looks like. One of the big plays that my team is learning is, okay, how do you bridge from IT and security to learn different aspects of the business? And there are really two things that we're focused on, which are what are the big problems within each of those industries that people are trying to solve? They're already spending money on it, but maybe they don't have a great way to solve it today. And that's our focus.
1: And there are three questions for leaders that you proposed in a recent keynote that I would like to go over because I think that they offer a great starting point for anyone that's listening right now and thinking about how do I implement this with my team? Uh, The first one is, are you giving candid, timely feedback to teammates? So a simple question to ask, but... Like anything, it's challenging to implement. How do you go about implementing this?
2: The key to that, in my opinion, you have to believe that as a leader, that your job is to make your people better. Even your best people can get better with your coaching and your leadership, right? We can all make each other better. My people make me better. I can make them better. And so if we create a culture of feedback and we all know that we're doing with the intent of getting better as an organization, that has to be part of the belief system, number one. But the other thing I would say is, I tie back a lot to belief systems. Your belief system comes from your experiences. Right? I fundamentally know that I would not be where I am today as a president of Splunk if I hadn't had some really tough leaders and some really tough feedback. People who help me see beyond my blind spots, people who help me grow. If as a leader you recognize that you're doing your people a disservice, because you don't give them tough feedback, which means that you're not helping them see beyond what they can see themselves. Mm. And so that's the way I look at it. I, I look at feedback as a gift. I really believe that the people who gave me tough feedback in my career and helped me grow beyond limits that I would have created for myself.
1: The second question here, are you examining and reexamining recent performance and how you can improve next time? Again, simple to ask, but how do you go about implementing this?
2: Again, you celebrate every quarter, right? And we all know that when you're in a software com- public software company, every 90 days the street's going to judge you. And so you want to celebrate those wins, and that's great. But at the same time, if all you do is focus on, you know, the positive and the good things that you're doing, and you don't think about what could be better, what could we have done differently? The key I like to focus on here is hindsight's 2020. Why wouldn't we use it? Hindsight is 2020. It's absolutely something we should always look at. That's the way that we focus on it as a team. And we use that key, hindsight's 2020. We just celebrated this. That's great. Now let's get in the room and talk about all the things that we know we can do better and that we have to do better if we want to reach the big provocative statement of being part part of every data-driven decision
1: in the world. I love it. And third question here, are you pushing your teams out of their comfort zones? So we've talked about getting outside your comfort zones a little bit. Are there any examples of objections that you get when you try to foster this type of mindset and culture in your team? It
2: gets back to being comfortable being uncomfortable, right? And so one of the things that you have to make sure that you do is allow people to fail, right? Make mistakes and then learn from those mistakes because you can't tell people to be comfortable being uncomfortable and then be punitive for every little mistake you have to create that environment where you're all in it together that if the mistake you made was based upon you know some some great logic and some great data and it was it seemed like a good decision at the time that's great and and so it really you have to create that safe environment and that a lot of this whole concept of growth mindset has to be around a trusted environment then the other big thing i would say is whenever you're trying to lead people through a high growth and through uncomfortable things you have to take a lot of time to explain the why right? So it can't be because I said so. It has to be, here's what we're going to attempt to do, but here's the why, right? right? Here's here's why I'm asking you to do what I'm asking you to do. I think focusing on that and making sure that you genuinely get people to buy in and come along with you because you've explained the why. I think that leadership that leans in on because I said so, this is what we're doing. Even if people follow, they can't give it their all because they don't fundamentally understand the why or believe in the why.
1: When you talk about careers and charting your career, uh, I think you have some really interesting ideas here. Let's start with the beginning of your career, which was at Sun Microsystems. How did you land that opportunity and what was that like at the time? Because I'm a big fan. I have a copy of Bill Joy's essay, his famous essay called Does the Future Need Us or Why the Future Doesn't Need Us, something along those lines on my desk. So I'd be curious to know, how did you get involved with Sun Microsystems, and uh, how did you get started in your career?
2: I actually had one step before Sun, and that was the National Security Agency. Oh, so I cool. went to, when I went to college, I majored in computer science. I will be the first to say it was a lucky guess. I never could have imma- imagined this world. You know, that was a long time ago, and I never could imagine imagined this world of Silicon Valley and all of the opportunity that exists here. So it was a lucky guess, and it was because I loved math and science. And so I ended up majoring in computer science, and from there, I got recruited to be a a hardcore computer scientist at the National Security Agency. And I spent about six and a half years there. And the entire time I was working on Sun Microsystems hardware and software. So I became pretty adept at Sun OS internals and then the software side of it. And then I got recruited to Sun to be a pre-sales uh, systems engineer.
1: I'm curious, when did the idea that you should choose a career with a massive market opportunity. When did that first start to dawn on you?
2: It was definitely after I got to Sun and a lot of really positive lessons learned. and then also, of course, you know, in the end, you also saw disruption that ended up ending places like Sun and many other high tech companies. So a lot of lessons learned there, mostly positive, and then some things about you know what what you want to do differently moving forward. But I think when I got to Salesforce, it just took the whole concept of market opportunity to another level. And I really understood, uh, you know, all of the aspects of the different TAMs because we had so many different market opportunities we were chasing there. We started with sales cloud, went to service cloud, had platform, marketing cloud. And you started to really understand that companies that were really going to get to these incredible growth targets had to have, you know, multi-product. They had to have uh, multi-market opportunities to go after And generally speaking, they need to be tangential right? So that it's not taking your go-to-market team and making them be split amongst what should I be selling today, right? So tangential opportunity. Exactly.
1: Where everything's connected.
2: Exactly. One flywheel, everything's connected. That's a great way to say it, Chad. During that time, I got involved in several of the acquisitions. You know, when you do acquisitions and you have to look at companies, it really helps you understand how to think about what the opportunity is.
1: So one of the common mistakes that I think a lot of executives or entrepreneurs make that they want help with is calculating TAM, right? because it's a very hard thing to calculate. Is there any advice uh, you have for anyone that's thinking about calculating TAM now?
2: You know, the immediate TAM is usually the easy thing to calculate, right? So if you know this is what the product does today and this is the market we're going after, generally speaking, that's, pretty straightforward. And, you know, the Gartners of the world and the IDCs of the world, and they all calculate that, right? And you can buy that data. Where the greatest leaders succeed is being able to see around that corner as to what the next market is and the next market. And I can tell you that, you know, when I originally got to Salesforce, Mark Benioff already knew that he was going after the platform market. Mm -hmm. He was starting with sales cloud, but I didn't have CRM experience. I had much more platform experience. And so it was really much more about the platform. And he could see around that corner as to what he could do by building out that platform and how many other markets he could get into.
1: So I I think that's really important, too, is to kind of see where your TAM's at now, but then try to imagine where it's going.
2: You have to think about the pivots that you can make and, again, the tangential markets that you could get to.
1: So let's talk about pivots for a moment. So how do you think about pivoting in your career? And what's an example where you made a pivot that felt very uncomfortable?
2: Pivots are a sign of intellectual curiosity, and if you succeed, then m- multiple times, and it's intellectual capacity as well. Um, I look for pivots on people's resumes because it tells me that they're a learner and they're willing to take risk and they're, they've got that high growth mindset. For me, there were many. Um, you know, One was, of course, when I went from a government agency, NSA, a very safe environment, really interesting work to being an SE at Sun. I didn't know a lot about being SE other than, you know, the fact that I was going to be working with the salespeople to help them sell. And I was the technology expert. Another great example uh, was when I got to be the chief of staff for the CEO and president of of Sun Microsystems, right? At that point, I got to learn all the dials of the business. I got to see things very early on in my career that, you know, most people don't get to see. And it's also a big part of why I now have a chief of staff, um, V. Lee, on my staff, because Doug and I here at our CEO and I really look at it as opportunities to groom the next layer of, you know, top executives for the company. But getting back to your question, you know, a great, another great example was when I went and made the move to the sales side, right? So moving from a technologist background and being an SE, eventually moving over to the sales side, that's, that's a big pivot as well. And then at one point I actually ran customer success, which is global services, all the services side of the equation at Salesforce. And so my general takeaway, when I think about pivots, I think too many people try and plan their exact path as a ladder. And I always say my career growth was a jungle gym. And I just had two things that I thought about each time I made a move, which is, can I really articulate why I'm making the move? What is it I'm going to be adding to my resume? What experience am I going to be adding to my resume that will make me more valuable over time? And then am I, do I think I would enjoy it? Those are, those are really the big things. And so I think that if you're constantly adding skills and expertise and experience to your resume, you know, it makes you a more rounded executive.
1: And one of the things you talk about too is the importance of picking the right mentors and the right uh, talent to help you grow. You also add the caveat, you have to make sure that there are people you're regularly interacting with, which I think is so important. Are there any stories that you have around mentors or team building that help illustrate this?
2: I think too often people talk about mentors and I get asked to be a mentor all the time and I do my best to help as many people as I can, you know, especially young, high potential, women in tech. and so uh, that's a real focus for me. but the one thing we need to understand is that as a mentor you can be there when they bring you situations or they want advice maybe on a career opportunity or a job or a particular tough situation. but the people that you're really that are really going to shape your career are the people that you interact with on a pretty daily basis, right? And so when I was at Salesforce, Mark Benioff, our CEO, did a really great job of exposing his senior executives to, all things strategy within the company and making sure that we were super clear on how he was driving the company and what decisions were being made and why the decisions were being made and so we do a lot of that here at Splunk as well. You know, when we have our quarterly business reviews, we don't just have my immediate staff there. We allow each of them to bring at least a plus one, in some cases, plus two to start exposing the next level down. What happens in these meetings? And I think those are the types of things that's where people really learn. And it's great to have somebody that you can get advice from, but in the end, who are you learning from on a daily basis? Who is that person who's giving you the tough feedback? Who is the person that's challenging your thinking and making you think bigger?
1: I think too, I mean, daily habits are so important. Uh, Everyone knows that but sometimes we forget that our workplace or wherever, that's where we need to increase the amount of people and, t- and talent, things like that. Susan, one of your mentors is Liz Wiseman. She's a researcher and author and many other things. I'd be curious to know how you found her work and what about her work is so appealing to you.
2: Liz uh, wrote the book, The Multipliers. And when and she was doing some work with us when I was at Salesforce. And since then, we've hired her to do work with us here at Splunk as well. And she really had an impact on me. She taught a class for us that was a leadership class and it was about, you know, growth mindset and learning. And it was about leading through multiplying. The concept is, you know, leaders can either be multipliers or diminishers on the whole. But the truth of the matter is whether, even if you're a great leader and you have a lot of multiplier skills, which I'll explain in a minute, you still have some diminishing skills and really understanding what those diminishing skills are. A multiplier is, you know, you take one plus one and you get three, four, five out of your people, right? Because you understand each of their skills and you understand how to bring them together as a team to get more out of them. Right. That's what a multiplier does. They shine the light on what people do really well and help them, you know, further excel. A diminisher is the leader who has to be the smartest person in the room. And if you show up as that person, the person who has to be the smartest leader in the room, and the person who always has all the answers, your team is not gonna be growing and learning. And they're gonna know that you're gonna be the one supplying the answers and they're gonna be shut down. And that's just not a healthy environment. And so her work really spoke to me very early on. And since then, she and I have built a a great relationship. And uh, post that I hired her as an executive coach and and, uh, she's been just a tremendous asset to me in my career.
1: Her work seems to be the type of uh, ideas and philosophies where once you you learn them, you look back at your previous careers and opportunities in a whole new light. Were there new insights you gained through working from her about your past, about your history?
2: Definitely. Again, it comes back to, you know, as a leader, one of the ways that you get feedback is through 360s. And that's great. But the truth of the matter is there's still, there's a human element missing from that. And, you know, my 360s, my career, I've always been very, very positive, And that's great. But one of the things And she talks about it coming with title and responsibility, is that the higher up you go, the harder it is for people to give you feedback. Even if you think you're inviting it, even if you think you're encouraging it, it's just hard. And so that was one of the things that I told her that she and I talked about and we've been working on. How do I create that safe environment to make sure that people really do give me the feedback? You know, she recommended a book called Thanks for the Feedback which is great and has been super helpful as well as the work I've done with her. And the concept is really, really basic. We spend a lot of time teaching managers how to give feedback. Nobody ever spends time teaching you how to receive feedback. And so, you know, to me, that's something I'm working on, quite frankly, every day. And I catch myself at times, you know, about to give an answer and hopefully catching myself and you know it'll always be a work in progress it'll never be perfect but she has really cemented some of those ideas in my mind and really helped me create a much safer environment for people to give feedback and making sure we actually did a workshop with my team and hopefully thereby also encouraging them to do the same for their teams.
1: Yeah, I think that practicing it is so important because like everything that's where you develop the skill. So taking feedback and receiving it, that's something I'm working at right now. So (laughs) any ideas to receive feedback? and not come across defensive.
2: One of the things that I've learned throughout the process is I think the greater level of trust you have with the person who's giving you that feedback, the less defensively you're going to take it. And so fundamentally, if there's that credibility. And so let's assume somebody gives you feedback who maybe isn't your favorite person, or you don't particularly think is that credible, and your immediate reaction is to want to be dismissive. I think the piece of advice I would give is that to every piece of feedback, there's some element of truth. It may not be 100% correct. It may be 10%, right. but there's always something if you try and tease it out that you can find.
1: Even if you yeah, you basically take out like any verbs or uh, personal insults, and there still might be some truth, <laughs> exactly. Some, some truth there. Exactly. Yeah. Let's talk about diversity and inclusion for uh, a little bit. So this is something that we're, as a company, always, uh, we're trying to do. We're trying to get better at it. Uh, and as a young company and as a small company, it's easy, but as an established company that is, you is know, thousands of people, that's something that's a huge challenge. Where do you see diversity and inclusion at now uh, in Silicon Valley and the larger business world?
2: The first thing I'll say is you know, Splunk and many other companies have a big focus on D&I right now. We have a D&I officer, Suzanne McGovern, who's doing some great work. As we tie back to data, we measure everything. Right, so we we're, we're measuring every function, we're measuring every geography, we're measuring everything, so that we actually know where we stand on DNI and how we're moving it. We're making sure that we do very specific things, like every candidate, every position that we hire for, we want to make sure there's at least two gender diversity candidates in there. We moved also this year to putting a focus on underrepresented minorities, which is a little bit trickier because not everybody self-identifies, and so that one's a little bit muddier than gender. I think the thing that people need to understand is that. Diversity and inclusion doesn't happen naturally. You have to make a, an effort to cast a wider net, and that doesn't mean you know. I hate it when I hear people say, "Well, so and so got a promotion, or so and so got this because they're you know D and I." What you need to understand is that if you cast a broader net um, and you make sure that the pool of candidates has a D and I representation, then your likelihood of hiring them is going to be higher. But you're still hiring the best candidate. That's one. The other one we're doing is on resumes, we're anonymizing the names. On job descriptions, what we're doing is working with a company to make sure that all of the language we use is gender neutral. There's actually scientific proof that says if certain job descriptions are written, that they attract you know, male or female, mostly male, mm-hmm. right? And that, that nobody thinks about it from a gender neutral perspective. And so that's one of the other things that we're doing. But getting back to your big picture question, sure. the thing that I don't think we're doing enough about collectively as a country, that we're not aggressively increasing the population of D&I professionals, I'll call it within tech right now. And so what's happening is Companies like ours, who are very DNI friendly, and others in the valley, we're increasing our DNI numbers, but all we're doing is stealing them from other people. <laughs> we're not actually fixing the root cause problem. And one of the things that we pride ourselves on at Splunk is, uh, you know, our investigative platform always getting to root cause. The data gets you to the root cause. We're not getting to root cause as a country, and you know, and to me that starts with middle school, ideally grade school, but at least middle school, and making sure that we're exposing kids to technology.
1: It's almost cruel, right? It- If, uh, you know, the world that they're preparing to enter is, you know, if they haven't had a long enough runway to get ready for it with the actual tools they're going to be using in that working world, it's a major disadvantage. 100%. Are there any programs or institutions that you feel are doing really good work at that middle school level for diversity and inclusion?
2: I think it's a lot of one-off type of behavior.
1: Basically a challenge to everyone listening to do your part or explore what that part is.
2: I think there's more we could do collectively and I'm not sure I know the answer to that, but it's one of the things I am passionate about after I retire, spending more and more time on. In the meantime, trying to do my part on things like I funded a STEM lab at my niece and nephew's middle school because they didn't have one. Luckily, there was a really fantastic superintendent there and, you know, we got together and talked about funding a STEM lab and funded the STEM lab. And so, you know, again, that's not solving the problem at mass. And so over time, I I certainly hope to be part of the greater equation, helping move the needle at a higher level. But for now, we'll do the one-off things that we can do. And if everybody does a little bit of that, it'll make the problem at least improve.
1: And so one of my friends, when I talked to him about this issue, he's a big advocate that the culture of Silicon Valley and the culture of the country have to change first before we're going to get any big improvements in diversity and inclusion. And one of the ways that he advocates doing this is by helping more females uh, become executives or start companies because these individuals are the ones that influence things on a bit broader of a scale. Are there any recent developments or young female founders or executives that you see out there that are doing great work?
2: You know, I think there are a lot of uh, female founders out there that are doing good work. You know, you see, especially in the, the coding space. I do think you see many more female founders today than you did, and I think that is just the world is, you know, their oyster. And I guess I would say that the culture has already started to shift. I think that people recognize is, you know, there's there's actual getting back to data. There's data that proves that if you have a greater DNI population, that it actually drives results. Right? It's top line results. It's bottom line results. And there's a ton of studies out there that show that. And so I think that people recognize now that it's not just nice to have or oh we should focus on DNI, but that DNI actually ties directly to performance.
1: And so we've skimmed over the surface of data, but let's uh, go a little bit deeper here. Uh, how can organizations go about? making sure that they have the best data possible. Let's start there.
2: When I think about all of the innovation that we're driving here at Splunk, it's maniacally focused on removing the barriers between data and action. And another way to say that is today, most people spend... 80% 80% of their time wrangling the data, structuring, integrating, you know, moving it, like whatever it is, they spend all their time wrangling data. That's a useless effort. It needs to be done today. We say there's all these puddles, ponds, and swamps, data lakes, data puddles, data ponds, and swamps out there. Every single one of them was purpose built for something. But what that has created is an environment that is so difficult to manage. And so before you think about what you can do with your data, you have to think about where it's coming from. What repository is it coming from? What's the structure? What do I need to do to get insights out of it? Right? And what we want to do at Splunk is we want to change that entire equation and help you think about where the data is going to. What action is it going to turn into? And so what we want to do is help you get value out of your data wherever it lives and eliminate the need for you to think about the format, the wrangling, the integration, any aspect of it. And that's our focus.
1: The organization can get back to being a duocracy or implementing that a bit better. I love it. When you're going about helping organizations go through all of the different uh, swamps and uh, pools and uh, everywhere that data's at, dark data, though, isn't typically visible. So oftentimes these sample sets are incomplete. How do you go about helping those organizations get together all the data?
2: We're the only data player out there today that doesn't require structuring, okay? And so the ability to easily get data in and making sure that you can consume all the data is something that we uniquely bring to the table. And I think that has to be the start of it, right? And so... It has to be that people need to believe that they need to ingest all the data and they need to have access to it because there are nuggets in the data that they're not aware of, as you called it, Chad, the dark data, right? There's so many outcomes that could be driven if people had access to that dark data and they understood it. And I think that the reason we're so focused on it at this point is because there's been a data explosion, Right? If you think about the number of devices in the world today, every single device right, is generating more and more data. And I think we all know that that's not going to stop. And so the compound annual growth on data and the introduction of chaos that it's putting out there in the world, we really feel like so many people are trying to manage that. And the truth of the matter is you can't manage chaos. right? So, so what is it that we can do to allow you to just ingest all that data and then figure out the value of it by acting on the data?
1: Is there much pushback when your team and Splunk advocates pulling in all the data in an unstructured way? Do you encounter much pushback where teams want to structure it? They want to get a better handle on it first or?
2: So fundamentally, no. I mean, that's not to say, you know, there are times where there are certain data sources which lend themselves to structuring. If you know the set of questions that you need to ask the same set of questions over and over and over again, there's a good reason for data to be structured. We're not saying that no data should be structured, but what we're saying is in order to get all the data in, do it in an unstructured format, then you've got it. And then you have the ability to ask it any question, um, questions that you don't know you were going to need to ask. And that's the difference between you know, having it in an unstructured format, because anytime you structure data, you're by definition eliminating data.
1: And are there any examples or stories of finding dark data? In a client's company, and a prospect's company, what's that usually look like? And are there any favorite examples you have?
2: You know, sure. I'll, I'll get back to even, you know, New York Presbyterian when they came to us and they were just an incredible partner in the way they came to us. They basically said they absolutely knew that there were ways to go about attacking this, you know, opioid problem or some of the privacy things that they were trying to solve, but that they didn't have the right ability to go after that data. And so w- literally we sat down with them and they understood Splunk really well and they had put some great thought behind the product requirements document. And then we teamed with them and we went and built it. And it was really interesting because it started with privacy on medical records. And then it eventually was like, oh, we start seeing the patterns. We can see this opioid you know, challenge and we can use the same platform, the same Splunk platform to go after that. And so um, that's a great example. I, I don't think people ever would think Spunk when you're like going, how do you attack part of the opioid crisis?
1: And do you see that pattern replaying itself where the organization gets started in one area, but there's a cascading effect of where oh, wait, this approach applies everywhere.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. It's, in fact, so many times our customers, they come to us with the next use case. We have a number of airports, Gatwick being one of them, that they splunk everything, including like whether or not people wash their hands in the restrooms, right? But they splunk baggage claim. They splunk the um, security lines so that they know when they need to open up additional lines. They actually correlate data between their, secure, their current security line and the traffic and the weather to see if they think they're going to have an on Rush of people coming, and do they need to open up? You know, they, their commitment is to get everybody through in five minutes. Again, these are use cases that you know we have these brilliant customers who really start to understand Splunk and then just come out with these amazing ideas of how to use it. And then we partner with them, of course, to try and figure out the next use case and the next use. Right. When I first got to Splunk, those were some of the craziest stories I, I heard, and you know they're just—it's great because it really is limitless.
1: As a business executive, how can you help encourage or? inspire your team to make the intuitive decisions, right? Because I'm sure there's a tendency here or at other places that are data-driven to rely on data for decision-making. How do you know when is the right time to apply the intuition and forget the data?
2: Yeah. So I think you have to ask yourself, is there any material data missing? Like, is there data that you know exist that it would help you make the decision better. Mm-hmm. And if the answer is no, then make the decision because sure. it's better to fail fast than spend, you know, months upon end not making a decision. Cause then at the end of that, if there's no new data anyway, you're still going to make the same decision.
1: Right. And maybe just check out like the search costs, opportunity costs, if you want to be really nerdy about it and then yeah, go forward with the decision. How are you uh, learning about data now? So I'm sure there's many data scientists on the team, many engineers. Is this something, is this a field where you're learning every day? Do you Primarily from client interactions. What's the learning process like around data here?
2: It's a lot. We obviously, um, I learn a ton from our product teams and interacting with the product teams. We definitely learn from our customers, um, we have advisory boards that we leverage our customers to give us input. We have uh, some unique things going on in our Splunk for Good, as we talked about. And we have you know research projects going on at universities. Um, and we're doing more and more of that as well, where we hope to learn a lot more about different use cases. The other thing I would say is that data scientists are a key part. We are injecting data scientists throughout all of our business so that we can practice what we preach and be more and more data driven. And so I think that the data scientists are going to really help every function, right? So you just hired a data scientist in my marketing organization. We're in the process of doing that throughout all of Splunk. We have obviously a lot of them in product. We have a lot of them in our security research group, but more and more of that in the day-to-day business, I think is going to be key.
1: Obviously everyone discovers Splunk in a different way, but what are some common customer journeys that you could share?
2: There are some common threads, which I will walk you through, but there's no two companies that look identical. And a lot of that has to do with their environment. But generally speaking, customers either start with IT use cases or security use cases, and then branch to the other. So very often there's a lot of money being spent in the market on security. So very often companies will start with security. But what they recognize and what we, of course, help them recognize is through a process we call prescriptive value pathing, is that the same data that they're capturing for their security landscape is data that is full of insights for how their IT environment is performing where their customers may be you know, having a bad experience on their website. All of the data, um, we call it you know, same data, many lenses. So the same data that you're capturing, because it's all machine data, and you need a breadth of machine data to, of course, secure your landscape, it's coming from your web servers. It's coming from your e-commerce servers. It's coming from, and that data, even if you're capturing it for security, it's still dark data if you're not using it for your marketing team and if you're not using it for your sales team right? And so that's why we believe that the possibilities of how people can unleash data, even if they're using it today, there's many more uses of that same data that they don't understand today. And we focus on something called prescriptive value pathing to try and lead our customers on those journeys.
1: And do you see a future where sales and marketing are going to become aligned based on data solutions like this?
2: Absolutely. I think that the big shift you've seen in marketing over the course of the last couple of years, is definitely marketing has become more digital. And then because it's more digital, now it can be more data driven, right? So um, when I first got to Splunk, there was no marketing operations team. And I'm very used to a data-driven marketing organization, and and now we have a great marketing operations team, and our lens on marketing is equally as data-driven as it is on sales.
1: Let's take a step back and do a bit of a lightning round to uh, end the interview. So this is where we just run through and get some. They can be as short or as long as you want. Uh, some answers to questions like, what are you reading? What are you listening to? What are you thinking about? So let's start with books. Uh, what have you been reading lately?
2: The book I mentioned. Thanks for the feedback. Sure. It's the work one that I. I recently read and blitzscaling is the one that i just started
1: very cool how is it so far
2: uh, it's good i'm like literally 10 pages
1: in i think Nice. started reading it last night and uh are you reading fiction at all or did you read fiction uh when you were younger absolutely anything come to mind that's uh it would be too embarrassing it would be way too embarrassing i was gonna make a deal where i shared the most embarrassing book on my bookshelf if you shared one of yours you go first let me think about the most embarrassing one uh, do you want a fiction or a nonfiction one? Fiction. It's the complete guide to the Harry Potter movie, how it was created and everything like that, and full color illustrations, all that. So. That's
2: not embarrassing. That's pretty cool. Mine's way more embarrassing. Mine would be like many versions of Daniel Steele books. Oh, that's,
1: that's okay. <laughs> so I'm, I'm from the same town as uh, Nora Roberts. I'm very familiar, with, or I, I guess, maybe, is, is she along the same...
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I okay. think she's definitely along the same and it's been years, but I do still have all the books for some reason.
1: I mean, beach reading, that's uh it doesn't get much better beach for the beach. Pretty good. What about listening? Are you listening to Spotify? Are you listening to Apple music? What's your favorite go-to?
2: Definitely Apple music. And then I have a Tesla. So they're streaming. One of the things I find is I have to challenge myself to continue to discover new music because you get in this streaming where they're just serving up all your favorites. Right. And so now I feel like I'm using Apple to do a lot of my discovery. And then I in my Tesla, it's kind of serves up everything I already know.
1: So when it Comes to recharging, are you going to the gym? Are you going to CrossFit? Are you going on hikes? How do you like to recharge and stay healthy?
2: Yeah, so my favorite thing to do is to run, but I had to give that up a couple of years ago, and so I shift it from running to kickboxing.
1: Okay, cool. And so
2: kickboxing is is kind of my go-to at this point.
1: Nice. I'll uh, yeah, I have to check that out. Um, we used to do combatives in the military, but it wasn't. Um, well, that sounds way as more cordy. serious than
2: my <laughs> than my kickboxing. It wasn't. It wasn't serious. It was <laughs> yeah. just
1: uh, yeah, a bunch of guys uh, messing around. What about TV series. Are you watching any movies? Do you like to binge on a TV series occasionally? And uh, if so, which, which ones?
2: Yeah. So I would say right now, the one that I, I I'm so far behind billions. Okay. Really, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm in the midst of billions right now. I'm only in season two, but it's really
1: cool. Yeah. It's one of those shows that is, uh, I think needed. I think we need more conversations about what's going on in finance and the SEC and everything. So much needed. What did I not ask you that you want to talk about or that you wish you were asked more?
2: I often get asked about advice to leaders and you hit on the talent aspect. But I will tell you that if you can only get one thing right, it's talent. If you know what great talent looks like and you're always thriving to hire the best talent and you keep a really high bar and then, of course, focus on the continuous improvement and making the talent even better. I've been really fortunate throughout my many years in the Valley to see what great looks like at many different levels. And if you learn how to hire talent and you hire people that are better than you and people that could be your boss someday, um, you will thrive. And I think that that is a really scary idea for a lot of young managers. But the best thing you can do to succeed is hire great people that can be better than you or are better than you.
1: Wise words. That's a great place to end it. Susan, thanks for joining us. Thanks for being generous with your time. This has been a blast. Any closing words or thoughts? No, just
2: thank you, Chad. I really, really enjoyed it. Ton of fun.
1: Likewise. Thank you. Mission Daily and all of our podcasts are created with love by our team at mission.org. We own and operate a network of podcasts and a brand and story studio designed to accelerate learning. Our clients include companies like Salesforce, they're a customer times five, Twilio, and Katera who work with us because we produce results. To learn more and get our case studies, check out mission.org studios. If you're tired of media and news that promotes fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and if you want an antidote to all that chaos, you're at the right place. Subscribe here and to our daily newsletter at mission.org. Each morning, you'll get a newsletter that will help you start your morning and your day off right.